All right, so we are continuing on in Genesis 12. If you have a Bible with you, you can open that up. If you don't, the Bible in front of you in the pew will be on page 9. Uh, as always, we will be uh, interacting with questions after uh, the message this morning. So if you have any questions at all, you can uh, jump on slido.com and type in RevCDA and the prompt and type your questions in there, and we'll take a look at what we have after the message this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just its timelessness, its power, its ability to just cut into the situations of our hearts and souls. As we read this story about this family from something like 4,000 years ago, um, there's just so much that we can learn about ourselves today. So much we can learn about just the human condition, uh, and most importantly, so much that we can learn about you and your character. I just pray that you would speak this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, that you would use my words if my words are your words, uh, but if they're not, just help all of us ignore them and speak your own words to us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I have a, I, I found an app that lets me scroll Twitter in chronological order without ads and without suggestions. And I found it very helpful in uh, moderating my social media use because I don't get a lot of weird stuff coming in. It's just mostly like dead theologians who have great Twitter accounts. Um, but occasionally I jump on the actual Twitter app on my computer. And so then you get whatever the algorithm gives you, right? And I, I came across this video in my feed last week. And it was, it was a, a, a video of, of this little girl. She was probably two years old. And she was standing on the kitchen counter. And her dad was standing a couple feet away from her going, come on, you can do it, come on, getting, trying to get her to jump off the counter. And she's going, like, wait for way too long. This video was longer than it needed to be. And, and she's, just, she's just trying, and come on, you can, come on, you can do it. And, and I was watching this video, and I was thinking, how is this going to end? Because it could go a couple different ways on social media. Like, it could be one of those, like, feel-good stories, or it could be the other thing. And I was just getting a little anxious about this little girl. And she finally jumps. And dad catches her. And it's just super sweet. And it's something about empowering your daughters to believe in themselves or something. I don't know. But I thought, man, what if he had dropped her? How would that have gone? How would it have been if this two-year-old's, one of her earliest memories of her dad is he dropped me. He, he coaxed me to jump off this counter and then he dropped me. How does that affect the relationship? We're going to read a passage this morning that at least in the scheme of Moses, the author of Genesis, is the first thing that happens to Abram after God promises him the world. And what it is, is it's a test of Abram's faith. And I think there's a lot we can learn in this text about ourselves, but also about the character of God and what it is like when it feels like he isn't keeping his promises. So 
in verse 10, we read, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. So famine, this, this food shortage, tempts the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It tempts them all to leave their land at some point. They, they all interact with famine. And the funny thing is, is the promised land, the land of blessing that, that Abraham is, is sent to by God and promised by God is built specifically to require their trust. Because see, in Egypt, the Nile River floods every year. And it, it waters the land and the soil is just rich and the farming is magnificent and it would be very, very rare, we're going to read about a story later in this book, but it would be very, very rare for there to be a famine in Egypt because of the Nile River. But in Canaan, the health of the crops and the food supply is based on the rains. And the rains are unpredictable. And sometimes they're plentiful and sometimes they're not. And so God tells Abram, I'm going to give you this land, and it's going to be your land, and it's going to be the land that I want you to be in, and it's a land that has this built-in mechanism for requiring Abram to trust God for his resources. He can't just assume that, well, there's this river here, and it's going to, every year, it's going to flood on its cycle, and it's going to create abundance now, in Canaan, every year, the question is, will there be rain this year? Will God provide? God wanted his people to live in a place that required them to trust in his provision. And this is, this is a challenge because we work really hard to create spaces where there are no variables, don't we? We work really hard to create spaces where nothing could possibly go wrong. Everything is sorted out and figured out. We know how it's going to happen. We can count on the system to work because we don't like to be in spaces where we have to rely on someone else. But this is one of the reasons why we pray something like, give us this day our daily bread, right? It's this reminder that ultimately we are under God. And God's provision for us is what we need to trust in. So this is an opportunity for Abram to learn this about God. Tremper Longman in his Genesis commentary says, we should put ourselves in Abraham's position. We have responded to God's command on the basis of his promise. We get to the land and find out it is no good. God appears to be a charlatan, at least to the untrusting, and Abraham apparently has trouble trusting. Have you ever felt that way? You are sure that God is leading you into something good, and then you get there, and it feels like the whole bottom falls out of it. When, um, when we first started uh, serving at the, the church at the Croc Center, my family was invited to be a part of the ministry team there in 2009. And we had, for about a year, been discerning the Lord saying that we were supposed to leave our church context uh, that we had grown up in. And we, there was nothing wrong with our church. We didn't have gripes. We weren't angry. We, we loved our church and our friends and the people there and, and, and all of it. But we just had this stirring and we were asking the Lord, where, where do we go? What do you want from us? And this opportunity to be a part of this new church that's starting in this big community center presented itself. And we thought, well, maybe, maybe this is the Lord. And we prayed about it and finally decided, yeah, this is, this is where God wants us to go. And, and we went. And it was honestly really hard, especially for my wife. Um, she had a really hard time making connections and, and finding a place in a very different kind of community than she was used to. And we would have lots of conversations about like, wow, well, maybe, maybe we were wrong. 
Maybe this wasn't what God wanted for us. And you, if you've ever been in this position, you, you ask those questions. Maybe, maybe I heard God wrong. You know, maybe I never really hear from God at all. Maybe I'm just delusional. Maybe this whole thing is silly. And it's a real test of faith when you feel like God is calling you somewhere, but the outcome, at least immediately, doesn't seem positive. As a, as a side note, this is a, this is a good reason to build an altar. Um, we're not going to talk about it much today, but in, in 13, Abram is going to leave Egypt, and he's going to go back to the promised land, and he's going to visit the altars that he made when he came to the promised land at the first place. And these are reminders of God's faithfulness to him in this physical piece of architecture. I think the question for us is, is how, do we, how do we remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God? Maybe, I know some of you keep a prayer journal and, and you can like track prayers that were asked and when they were answered and there's this history of God's faithfulness over time. Uh, some of you maybe, you keep keepsakes. Like this is, this is the thing that I have to remind me of this time in my life where God was faithful. I'm really bad at this. Um, I don't do a good job of, of remembering. In fact, I had to ask Joanna for the illustration about the Croc Center because I'd forgotten about that. She remembers things. But something is, something bad is happening in, in Abram's journey with God and he's, he's been trusting and, and he's been given all these pro promises and, and now things seem to be going sideways. So maybe one question is, was it wrong for Abram to go down to Egypt? And I'm not sure. See, later on, Isaac is going to be tempted to go down to Egypt during a famine, and God's going to say, don't go down to Egypt, stay in the promised land. But then later on after that, Jacob is going to be tempted to go down to Egypt during a famine, and, and God's going to say, you should go down to Egypt. And it seems, as, as, we, as we read this story, this is, we're going to see some negative things about Abram, but it, it just seems like Abram is taking his life into his own hands here. And I think we have that tendency. We pray and we talk about trusting in Christ, and, but when the going gets tough, we say things like, God helps those who help themselves, right? Many of you probably know this story. Um, of a, it's, a, it's a silly story, but uh, it's about a man who is caught in a flood. And the waters are rising, and this, this raft comes by and says, hey, jump in the raft, we'll get out of here. And he says... No, that's okay. I, I prayed to God to save me. And so the raft leaves, and then the, the water's up to his chest, and this boat comes by and, and says, hey, jump in the boat, and, and we'll get out of here. And, and, and he says, no, I prayed to God, and he's, he's going to save me. And then the, the water's up, up to the roof, and he's standing on the roof, and a helicopter flies by and throws a ladder down and says, jump on the ladder, and we'll get you out of here. And he goes, no, it's okay. I prayed about it, and God's going to save me. And then he dies. And he gets to heaven and he goes, God, I prayed. Why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What else do you want? And that's a silly story. But that's a, it's a real issue for our lives, isn't it? Like, should Abram have stayed in Canaan and waited for God to provide food? Or was Egypt God's way of providing food? And I'm sure you can think of situations in your own life where you've grappled in that way. Like, do I do the thing that seems like maybe I'm walking in my own power or am I an agent with a free will that God has given me to make decisions and he wants me to walk that way? It can be really confusing discerning the will of the Lord. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Some of you may know that verse as saying, In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that's just an older word that means the same thing. But, but I feel like in our modern context, the word acknowledge is, is kind of like an Oscar speech. 
You know, you, you get up and like, I just want to thank Jesus for giving me all this money. Right? Like, there's not really any kind of relationship there. If you know someone, that's a very different thing. And I think for those of us that struggle with God's will, which I think is probably all of us, we should be encouraged to press into knowing God. Become habitual with God. In all your ways, know him, Proverbs says. And I think about this in, in the context of my marriage and, and, and whether you're married or not, you have these significant relationships in your life. And the question would be, how does that other person's presence in your life inform your decisions? Because of my marriage, when I go to the grocery store, I know that there is a special kind of chocolate that Joanna will want me to buy. And I also know that if there are three price points of marinara sauce, I should get the cheapest one. When I make coffee in the morning, I could just make myself a cup of coffee. But I know that my wife wants a cup of coffee too, so I make coffee for her. And, and that's not so much about serving her in this example, but it's about understanding that these things in my life are informed by this other person that I know deeply. And I think our relationship with God is similar to this. We are out in the world doing whatever, not because God specifically said you need to write this email or visit this restaurant, but as we do the normal things of our lives, the way we live them out should be informed by what we already know about God and who he is and what his desires for us are. And I wonder if at this point in the story, right after Abram's call, that Abram doesn't really know Yahweh very well yet. It might just be the case that he hasn't lived with God long enough to know what to do in this situation. But as we continue to read, his next move is clearly the wrong one. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me and let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well with me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Okay. This is one of those things that you just think, like, what? What is this for? What is this in the Bible? What is this about? It's so different from our context. But the first thing I want us to recognize here is that this is a fall story. When I say fall story, I mean Genesis chapter 3. Remember, Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Adam and Eve falling into sin, being tempted by the serpent, choosing their own way above God's way. And Moses... Remember we said this last week, Moses is writing these things for a reason, and he's giving us clues that we should be thinking about Genesis 3. Because what he's trying to communicate is God has just chosen a new Adam, a new representative. Will he live up to his calling? We've seen Adam and Eve, chosen by God, fail. And we've seen Noah, chosen by God, fail. Will Abram succeed as God's representative on earth when he's tested? The answer is no, he won't. But how is the author cluing us into this? So there's a few things going on here. This is a life or death situation, right? Just like Genesis 3, issues of life and death. Abram, in this story, plays the role of the serpent who tells half-truths in order to deceive, to move his agenda forward. 
Sarai is good to look at, just like the fruit was good to Eve. Pharaoh's officials see her and take her. These are the same words that the author uses when Eve saw and took the fruit. God asks Eve, what have you done? The next section, Pharaoh is going to ask Abram the exact same question. And then the story ends with Pharaoh expelling the couple from his kingdom, just like God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. These things are not coincidences. They are deliberate, literal clues to Abraham as a new Adam who, just like the old one, isn't faithful to his calling. So what's going on here? What's Abraham thinking? So it's possible to think that Abram imagines this lie as protecting everyone. In the ancient Near East, um, a woman would be, in this situation, would be under the authority of her brother. And so as the head of the family, anyone that would want to marry her would have to go through him. And in most circumstances, as a suitor, you would have to get a relationship with the head of the household, and there'd be a lot of politicking and giving of gifts and schmoozing over a period of time. And Abraham could use this cultural custom to his advantage to kind of push off the suitors, and maybe there's multiple suitors, and he's like entertaining offers. And maybe the plan is he can navigate this social situation long enough for the famine to be over and for them to leave. But the plan doesn't work because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, doesn't ask for things. He just takes what he wants. And Abram has no power to say, no, you can't marry my sister. Have you ever had a really good plan go just a little bit sideways? <laughs> See, Abram thinks he can use ungodly means for godly ends. He's been given this blessing. He knows that all of these promises are his. And he thinks he can just kind of wiggle on his ethics just a little bit in order to make sure that God's will ultimately is done. Abram knows he's the chosen one. He's protecting himself. Maybe he thinks he's protecting his family. And it just makes sense because times are desperate. And we are so tempted to be this way. Just tell a little lie to get out of a bad situation. Some creative bookkeeping to help the business flourish. We ask questions like, what's the lesser of two evils here? God, God just wants me to be happy, right? I find this all the time when I speak with Christian business owners, and thankfully, uh, none of the members of our church are, are like this, at least as, as I can tell. But like, I, I meet people who are followers of Jesus, and they're, they're in business of some kind, and, and there's this sense that like that there's this talk about mission and kingdom and love for neighbor, but when it comes down to it, money is the most important thing. Just recently, talking to someone who had been cheated out of money by someone much wealthier than them after being promised things and, and in the context of Christian brotherhood and care and but at the end of the day, this person's highest priority was making as much money as possible. And we think we can just kind of tweak our ethics here and there. It doesn't really matter as long as in the end, the greater good is served. Psalm 15 says this, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? 
The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord and honors those who fears of the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. The psalmist, this one who keeps his word, whatever the cost, is this this indication that there will be times when the expedient thing to do and the right thing to do are different. And according to the psalmist, the righteous person, the person that is walking in step with God, is going to make a hard call even if it hurts them because it's the right thing to do. But this is not the call that Abram makes. Look at verse 16. What happens here? Pharaoh treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Hey, everything turned out great. What do you know? Except for... You know, his wife being sold into a harem. But, you know, Abram just told this little half-truth, and he got rich. Huh. But then what happens? But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, Why, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. See, Yahweh isn't going to let this man get away with something that speaks against his character. This is what comes with being the chosen one. Abram, you are my representative. And if you are going to represent me falsely, I'm going to have to step in. Because the Egyptians, they will think about Yahweh, what they learn from Abram. And again, for us, if, if you've got a little scheme going, just a, a little shady business, God is going to reveal that eventually, especially if you belong to him. Galatians 6 says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. God is not mocked. Nobody's getting away with anything, especially not his own people. Abram has no answer for Pharaoh. He knows that he is in the wrong. He has lied. He's jeopardized his wife's honor. He's brought judgment down on the Egyptians who did nothing wrong. And more than all of that, he has dishonored and misrepresented Yahweh. And we see this foreign ruler has more faith than Abram does. We don't, we don't know how he finds out about Sarah's relationship to Abraham, but he knows the immorality of it, and he quickly remedies it. Pharaoh is shocked and disgusted by Abram's behavior. This pagan king rebukes the follower of God for his poor behavior. And it's really embarrassing, right? Have you ever been in that situation where somebody knows you're a Christian and you're behaving in a way that is not honoring to Christ and they call you on it? Hey, I thought you were a Christian. Don't, don't Christians love each other? Don't Christians tell the truth? Aren't Christians honest? Gosh, that's such an awful feeling to know that you have failed to live up to God's standard and outsiders are the people that noticed. I watch our, the Coeur d'Alene City Council meetings every two, other Tuesday because I'm a fun guy. 
And uh, there have been some really crazy city council meetings lately. And, and there's been some issues that have come to the council that have, that have been important. There was, there's some stuff about prayer and some arts and just different things. But, but it brings Christians out for public comment. And you get three minutes of public comment. And often these men and women come up and they comment and they, they talk about Jesus and they quote the Bible and they're just mean. And multiple times, some of, some of our city council members and the mayor are, are Christian, but some aren't. And, and, and there, are, there have been opportunities for these non-Christian people to say like, hey, you know, I, I, I value your right to speak in this forum. That's what we're here for. But could you please be nicer? I thought you were a Christian. My understanding of scripture and, and the Christian faith is that Christians are kind, and this isn't kind at all. And they get rebuked in public by non-Christians for their poor behavior. That's so embarrassing for us as the church. This should not be the case. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey God? Peter says, you should not be called out for wicked behavior, for killing someone, for stealing stuff, for just being evil, for being a meddler. I'm not really sure what that means, but that sounds serious. Judgment begins with God's household. The, the, the ethics of the kingdom of God, they apply to us before they apply to the world. See, God is the image of Jesus. And if he has to shine a light on all of our dirty laundry in order to get us to pay attention, he's going to do that. Because he wants us to be pure and holy. He's committed to do that. Just like Abram, God committed to Abram to make him into this people. And he's going to see that through. And that's going to take shaping him into someone who walks in righteousness and justice. The last several years have seen multiple scandals within the church. It, it used to be that we could just point to the Catholics and say that was their problem, but not so anymore. And oftentimes when scandal is revealed, whether it's abuse of power or financial mishandling or, or sexual immorality in, uh, in various kinds, people will say, like, well, we, we had to keep it secret because if it got out, it would hurt the mission. What hurts the mission is a lack of character in God's people. And when God reveals what's been hidden in the darkness, he is purifying his church. He is making us better, even if it hurts, even if it's awful, even if people lose their jobs and their lives are, are shattered because of their own sin. It's because God wants us to look like Christ, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get us there. The last promise in Abram's call last week was that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. And so here's a people, Egypt. Is Abram a blessing? No. He causes plagues. He dishonors them. This is a, this is a loss for Abram. It shows a real deficiency in his character and reveals that he has a lot to learn about following Yahweh. Now, there will be more chances for him to be tested. Some he will fail and some he will pass. But this first one is a big L. But someone else is being tested here. 
This is a test for Yahweh. From the author's perspective, this is the first opportunity to ask the question, will God make good on his promises? Will God keep his word? This is where we see this strange thing about this story that doesn't make a lot of sense. Abram leaves Egypt a rich man, doesn't he? He's just filled with all of this wealth, and he ends up making out pretty well, which is a, which is a weird thing. It's a, it's a wrench in this morality tale. You'd think that he would leave Egypt with his tail between his legs, penniless. But no, he leaves Egypt other than maybe some issues he has to work out with his wife, better off than he left. Because see, Yahweh made a promise. Even though Abraham is kind of a snake, Yahweh is going to keep his promise. And we might go, well, that's not fair. And that is correct. That is not fair. But Yahweh gives no conditions for his blessing. Go back and read Chapter 12, there's no, if you do this for me, Abram, if, you, if you're kind to strangers, if you're morally upright, if you represent me well, then I will bless you. He doesn't say anything like that. He just says, I'm going to bless you. His promise is totally one-sided. No matter what Abram does, and he's going to do a lot more shady stuff, God is going to keep his promise. And this is very much like the new covenant in the blood of Christ that you are a part of if you are a Christian. It's a one-sided covenant. Jesus is not going to stop loving you, even when you fail over and over and over again. Because this covenant is built on what he has done and offered us by his grace. There was never a point when you became a Christian where, where God said, if you do these eight things, if you achieve this moral status, if you accomplish these goals on my behalf, then I will love you, then I will save you. That's not what it, the way it works. We are saved unilaterally because Jesus works on our behalf. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead and descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And Paul is saying a lot there. You should spend some time chewing on it. But notice the last line of that verse. Jesus Christ cannot deny himself. He is faithful. He will keep his word. On all the days when you think that God has abandoned you and everything has gone terribly wrong, Jesus Christ will keep his promises to you. He will never fail you. And he, he doesn't do that because of how great you are. He does it because of who he is because he's being consistent with his own internal character. Maybe you're, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're sort of disgusted with Christians or hypocrisy. Maybe you, you look out and you see the world just the way we do, and you see all the things that the church is doing that are awful. We talk about morality and holiness and family values and, and look at the mess that we're making of our own lives. The thing is, like, all of that is true. We are fragile, broken people, but we have a strong and mighty Savior. And if you don't know Christ this morning, 
you're, you're still a hypocrite, just like the rest of us. Somewhere deep down, you know you can't live up to your own standards, let alone God's. But that's not the covenant that Christ holds out to you. Jesus doesn't say, get all your stuff together, figure out all your baggage, and when you're good enough, I will accept you. If that was the terms of the agreement, none of us could say we are his. Just like Abram, you're a mess. Listen to the covenant that Christ has for you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul says it this way in Romans. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, Paul is so confident in Jesus' faithfulness in his, prom in his promises that he can talk about the future glorification of the people of God in the past tense. And this should be encouraging as we examine our own broken lives. When we see what's happening in the present and we feel discouraged and broken and awful and we've, we've sinned again in that way that we can't seem to get out of, we're not living up to the kind of life we know that we're being called to live. Paul recognizes that God's church has already been glorified, has already been made like Christ. It's a done deal because it's the work of Christ. It's not the work of us. I love this passage also by Paul in Philippians. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal, already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says. Like he's, he's working hard to live a life that's worthy of Christ, but the reason he can do that, the reason he can have confidence that in that is because he knows that he has already been taken hold of by Jesus. He's already been taken hold of by Christ. And as we look at this first opportunity of testing in Abraham's life, we see the same thing. We see a man who is broken, who doesn't know his God well, who is selfish, who uh, does, makes some really poor decisions uh, and endangers important relationships in his life because of them, who misrepresents God to political rulers and an entire group of people. And yet, God doesn't let him go. God doesn't give up on him. God promises to bless, and he keeps his word. So Christian, just like that, Jesus has got you. Even in your mess, he will be faithful. He will continue to be faithful as you stumble forward with him. Let's see if we have some questions. go. When a person walks forward in faith, and the test of that faith is the failure of the church, where is a person supposed to go practically? person walks forward in faith, the test. 
if I, I think I'm understanding this correctly, if, if the testing of your faith is something that, that happens in the context of a Christian community where you are, you are hurt, first of all, I think that's real, that that needs to be, um, that needs to be brought out into the open, that needs to be talked about, that needs to be acknowledged, um, a lot of times we just kind of hide things and we don't acknowledge hurt. But I, I wonder if implicit in this is, is an idea that is, is fairly popular that the church is kind of this monolithic entity. Like people will say something like, you know, I have been hurt by the church. Well, chances are that's not true. You've been hurt by a small group of people, or maybe even just one person, is part of a church who represents Jesus in some sense. And I don't want to discount how painful that can be, but I would also say that the church, the body of Christ, has been here for 2,000 years, walking forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, and there are places, there are communities, there are groups of people that you can find community with, respite with, rest with in the church. And I think that's a real big mistake for, for a lot of people who are, um, you know, the, the popular term is deconstructing, is that we've been a part of, an, a, of a church experience, and, and I've, I've heard stories who maybe they've only been a, at one church community for their whole life and then something went wrong and maybe it was really wrong. I don't, I don't want to, again, discount that. And then they've just decided, well, the Christian faith is broken and I can't be a part of it. And I would just encourage you, if, if that's you, if you're feeling like the church has hurt you, to, to really get specific about that. Like, how, who hurt you? How were you hurt? What happened? Because it's, I don't think it's fair to apply that kind of pain, which is real, to the entirety of the body of Christ. Next question is, do you believe we as Christians should call out the hypocrisy of other Christians or love them without questioning their sins as Jesus did? Well, I don't know that Jesus loved them without questioning their sins. I think he pretty consistently questioned people's sins. But those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Calling out hypocrisy is often a very loving thing to do. Allowing people to live in sin is an unloving thing to do. Now, you can call people out in their hypocrisy and be a jerk about it, and then you're both wrong. But I, I think we should strive to have relationship with people to where they will listen to us if we see things in their lives. Like, like I was talking about this with um, a friend the other day. Like, if there's something significantly wrong with me, I want to know about it because I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to I live a life that is authentically Christ-like. And I fail in many ways, but if you see me fail and you love me, and we have a relationship, like, what are you doing if you don't tell me? If you're just letting that go because you don't want to hurt my feelings, like, that's not much of a friendship, right? Now, that's different than calling out strangers. I think that's usually probably a pretty bad idea. But Jesus frequently calls people out of their sin. And he does it in a way that draws them closer to him and doesn't push them away. And so we need to be people who figure out that kind of energy to where we know people well enough. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that are close enough to where we can say, hey, I see this thing in you and I don't think it's Christ-like. And the response is not, how dare you question me, but the response is, thank you for telling me. I need to know that because I want to be more like Jesus. 
we're going to take communion this morning. And Jesus says, when he initiates the communion meal in the upper room at the Last Supper, he says that these are the symbols of this new covenant that he's creating. Just like God creates a covenant with Abram where he is going to bless him, Jesus creates a covenant with his people. And it's a covenant that is built on his broken body and his shed blood. And when we come to experience the communion table, to take, to eat, to drink, we're not bringing anything to this table. I mean, you can, you can watch everyone as they come up. Like, there's no, like, slot in the front to put a quarter in or anything. Like, this is all a gift of Christ for us. We don't contribute to this meal in any way. We're just simply invited to participate in it. And this is the the basis of our covenant with Christ. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He's given us new life and forgiven us of our sin and given us his Holy Spirit. All of these things are by grace, as a gift. And so as you come and take the bread and the cup, take it back to your seat, just think about that. Think about the fact that you did nothing to deserve that, that you haven't earned that, that that is a gift from Christ to you, and that you are members of this new covenant in his blood by grace. And in that grace, Jesus will continue to keep his promises to you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.